Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> Happy Father's Day. Um, I'm not usually the one up here, and uh, so I need your prayer all over that. And we are here together this morning to open God's Word and learn from Him. So let's ask Him to bless this time together. Dear Lord, we thank You for this time. We thank You for Your Word, and thank You for Father's Day. I thank you, Lord, for my earthly father, and now he's with you. And Lord, I praise you that you are my heavenly father, and you haven't left us alone to fight this thing out on our own, Lord, that you've given us guidance, you've given us friends, you've given us direction, you've given us the church, this body that we gather in together. And so, Lord, pray that you will open our hearts to your word this morning. May your words come through Nobody's here to hear me, Lord. We're here to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I'm going to need one of those handouts. Because I think, I know what I put together. Um, but let's, let's review Titus 1, 5 through 9, the qualified elders. For this reason I left you in Crete, okay, says Paul talking to Titus, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. If a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or insubordination. For a bishop must be blameless. Or, or we learned this was a shepherd or an elder. Those words are interchangeable for bishop. Uh, a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able, by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convict those who contradict. So we learned that what qualifies a man for spiritual leadership, and this is your first blank, is godly character. But I'm going to tell you, we also learned that the elder's task is to exhort, which is to encourage and teach, and to convict, which is to take a stand against or to expose error or sin to the devil. We learned that the elder is the shepherd of the flock, and the shepherd has two voices, those to gather the sheep and to ward off the enemy. Um, so really, an introduction, this lesson's already been taught, so I'm going to sit down. No, <laughs> today's lesson is, is more of a call to arms for the warrior sheep. Okay? We're looking at the passage in Titus that reinforces why the elders' character and task are so critically important and how it applies to all of us, both elders and non-elders, today. So let's talk about today. Today's Father's Day, obviously. Um, we've got some jerseys honoring fathers. Um, it's you know the one-year mark of my dad passing away, May 24th of 2013. But we also, for all of us, we recently observed the 70th anniversary of D-Day. Okay, and I went on to uh, the Americans, this is the quote from American Experience. The invasion of France on June 6, 1944, was a triumph of intelligence, coordination, secrecy, and planning. The bold attack was also a tremendous risk. Ultimately, it succeeded because of individual soldiers' bravery in combat. Now, who here has seen the HBO series Band of Brothers? That was a powerful series, not recommended for kids. Uh, it was the realities of war. And this is, this is their own description on their, on their site. This is the story of the E. Easy Company, 506th Regiment of the 101st Airborne Division. From their initial training, 
starting in 1942 to the end of World War II. They parachuted behind enemy lines in the early hours of D-Day in support of the landings at Utah Beach, participated in the liberation of Carantan, and again parachuted into action during Operation Market Garden. They also liberated a concentration camp and were the first to enter Hitler's mountain retreat in Berchtesgaden. A fascinating, get this part, a fascinating tale of comradeship that is, in the end, a tale of ordinary men who did extraordinary things. That's a band of brothers. Now, the book that Jim referenced last week, as he was uh, getting it for the leaders of Stuart Heights, uh, is Church Elders, How to Shepherd God's People Like Jesus. And this is a special book to me, because during the seven years that we lived in Boston, this was our church, and this was our pastor. And uh, church means a lot. A lot to us. The uh, elders that Jeremy's writing about here, he, he, in the introduction to the book, it just hits hard. It's, he uh, writes the inscription, To the elders of South Shore Baptist Church, my band of brothers. He says later in the book, he says, Looking back on more than a decade and a half of pastoral ministry, I can say that one of my greatest ministry joys has been serving with the lay elders of my congregation. These men have been a band of brothers for me and for one another. We've shared laughter and tears. We've celebrated victories together and prayed our way through seemingly unsolvable conundrums. They've stood by me, sometimes quite literally, during some of the hardest moments of my ministry. Many times I've led them well. At other times... They've picked me up and carried me until I could lead again. So I know these men. And he writes about these men. And I was talking to Trish. I was like, oh, my word, that's Kevin Jameson. And, and oh, look, that's Getsky. And this, you know, this person, you know, and you look through there. And you're like, ah, oh, because I know them. I've served alongside them in many cases. And I've watched them. And I know their integrity. I know their hearts for God. They're ordinary men of godly character and integrity banded together doing extraordinary things. Friends, as Christians, we are at war in the world against the forces of our adversary, the devil. And there's armor, the full armor of God, and we have allies. Now, just as Jeremy has his band of brothers in Boston, in the text we're going to see the marching orders for Titus and his band of brothers on Crete. I believe that you'll find that the war against the church on Crete shares a lot of the similarities with the war that we, the church, face today. So are we ready to get into the text? Uh, we're going to break it down as we go. So get your pens out. Here we go. Are we ready? The elders. Stop there. I want you to do something for me. I want you to circle the S in elders. Okay? And then look back at verse 5 that we just read through. Okay? Where he says, appoint elders. Circle that one too. Circle the S there. Okay? Elders. Plural. In every city, singular. So Paul understands this war uniquely. And this plurality of elders is a military, military tactic. And so to further illuminate military tactics, we're blessed to have in our midst someone uniquely trained and gifted in military tactics. And that would be United States Air National Guard Chief Master Sergeant Doug Skinner. <laughs> Welcome him this morning. <laughs> Doug, you and I had a great conversation this week. I, I was blown away 
by just oh, the parallels in this passage here to the military training that you've gone through and that you instruct others in. So I'm going to ask you a couple questions here, if it's all right. Um, going into a hostile situation, you routinely send soldiers in by themselves, right? Negative. Negative. What do we do with these soldiers? Where did they, did they go in? Uh, what are they trained to do? Work together. Work together in pairs, teams. Uh, you referred to it uh, as wingmen. Um, somebody who's, what's the military term for it? Somebody's got your back. They've got your six. So you're, this is a position on the clock. You're looking at 12. Somebody, something's behind you. When we're wearing the full armor of God, what does it talk about that we're wearing on our back? There's a breastplate. There's a shield. There's a sword. You could argue you'd probably swing these things around behind you, but they're awkward. Um, the thing guarding your back is your partner. Life's a team sport. It wasn't meant to be done alone. We have the church. We have each other. So we've got somebody who's got our six. So when they go, they're pretty much just ready when they enlist, right? I mean, these, these are guys that, you know, hey, I, this is a job that we're all going to do. And so the weaponry and tactics, they're just intuitive, right? No. <laughs> so there's a lot of training. Um, I, I, I like the way you, that you talked about the training um, for what can happen. Elaborate on that a little bit. Well, you, you kind of have to prepare yourself for what could happen. Uh-huh. And to, uh, it's not only you, but your partner, your wingman. So if it does happen, you know how to react instinctively. So you're not, you're not thinking of it on the way in, you've already got this down. This is if somebody pops out from around this building, we're going to do this. He's going to move to this position. I'm going over here. We're going to watch over each other so that we're not just, we don't have to talk in that moment. We already know. It's awesome. Um, this one I wanted to hit on too. Each soldier brings them, of course, the exact training. I mean, these, these have got to be the same mindset of guys. These are, you know, they've got to have the same skills. They've got to be thinking just like each other, and, and nobody stands out from another, do they? In training? Just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> Describe for me what uh, train the trainers means. It's, it's a Air Force term, a military term that we use that, uh, you know, when, when you need training, you don't, it's sometimes not cost effective to send everybody. So what you do is you look around and you find somebody uh, that is, is really key on that task. You might, for me, it was tower climbing. We, we build towers. We do ground-to-air communication. So we've got a tower to build, and we have to certify on how we climb. We find somebody that's really good in that, and then we send that person to school. That person who it's naturally for them to do these things, they go to school, they train, and we found that what it does is that uh, they're more motivated, they're excited, they catch on better. And they're more apt to be able to teach others. That's awesome. Thing. So they come back, and guess who we use to teach that? <laughs> that individual. So that person has some gifting and some talent and some passion for that area, and they're, they're ready to show others how to, how to approach that area. And that's the kind of way that it is with the plurality of elders. Each elder, well, Jeremy calls it the Swiss Army Elders. Okay, <laughs> you got a Swiss Army knife, right? You got a blade, you got a, maybe a spoon, uh, toothpick, uh, saw. There might be a little tree saw kind of thing. 
Um, all these things tucked up into one tool, this, this body of elders. And, but the, each, one, each one is shaped differently by their experiences, by their, by their gifting from God. So that into a situation when they, you know, this particular problem rises up, you've got an elder who, who knows how to handle that. It's a financial thing in the church. We know how to handle that. It's a disciplinary action with one of the church members or perhaps a pastor in the church. They know how to handle that. They have experience in that. And so you, you're able to unfold that tool and use it for that situation. Another thing he talks about uh, with the plurality of elders is then shepherding the shepherds. And I alluded to this a little bit. Because in the church, the shepherds are also sheep. And so who's going to shepherd the shepherds? The elders. They come together. They pick each other up. They speak into each other's lives. And they support each other. They're not alone. They've got each other's six. Um, the elder's task then, okay, we're moving on. We're actually moving forward here, uh, is, to, is that of a shepherd. And the goal of any good shepherd is to protect and produce mature sheep who will then produce more mature sheep. Um, I don't know about you, but I've heard a lot of sermons that talk about sheep being dumb. And it's been nagging at me, and so I did some extra work research this week on sheep. And so without launching into a separate sermon series on sheep, I'll just say that sheep are not dumb, and frankly, they're really smart. And Jesus called himself the good shepherd and us his sheep. He's not calling the church his bride dumb. He's speaking beautifully of common relationships that are understood by his audience. They understood shepherds, sheep, what the shepherd does for the sheep, what the, how the sheep rely on the shepherd, and they know his voice. Um, Matthew ten sixteen talks about that he has a job for us, that we need to, as sheep, he's sending you out into the world, into the world, and there's wolves. I'm sending you in as sheep to be wise as serpents and harmless as a dove. He's not talking about dumb sheep. These are warrior sheep. So I'm over the dumb sheep thing. So, you know, when people give themselves an excuse, I did that, I couldn't help it, I'm just a sheep, I'm just a victim. No, get over that. It's time to start transforming that image into the banded together warrior sheep. Okay, so we're moving on to the text. Why? Four. Stop there. We might move really slowly through this text I'm finding this morning. Um, so Paul's saying, hey, looking back at verses 5 through 9, I told you that who these elders must be, and they're not perfect men, but they're mature and still growing men of godly character. And here's your blank, because the problem at hand is this. There are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, who are these people? The Judaizers. We talked about it in the Galatians. These people that are coming in, in the church. There's a blank. In the church. These guys are in the church. Okay? And they want to basically turn Christianity into this Jewish sect. And it's not that. It's outside of that. They want to impose Jewish laws on that. And, and Paul wants to grant the freedom that Christ gives and not be, you know, those... Those Jewish laws, those observances they had ended at the cross when the perfect sacrifice was given. So they're in the church. This is the problem. Picture this. We're at war. We are at war. Okay? And in a war, you establish camps and posts and protected areas where the people on the inside are on your side, and you set a watch and patrols around the perimeter and keep the enemy out. And these guys have breached the perimeter. This is a problem. They're in the camp. So what do we do about that? So we look on at verse 11, it says, Whose mouths must be stopped. 
Now, the Greek word for stopped here indicates a silence as applied to wind instruments. Paul is telling the elders to shut off the hot air. Okay? Put another way, you ever hear the phrase, pull out all the stops? It refers to pipe organs, and there's stops, and they restrict the flow of air through the resonating pipes. And, and so as you pull out those stops, more air goes through those pipes. So as the stops are pulled all the way out, all the air through all the pipes, they're activated by all the keys that you're playing, goes through there, and it gets really loud. So, he's saying to Titus and his band of brothers, you know, when you don't have air blowing through this tube, there's no noise. He's saying, guys, stick a cork in it. <laughs> there's your blank. Stick a cork in it. So, how do we do that? And uh, for that, I just I have to turn to the, the uh, commentary I've been reading uh, by Phillips. And uh, he's got a really good thing on here. Um, We're so infatuated by freedom of speech nowadays that we tolerate almost anything. The attitude is, although I may hate what you say, I will die for your right to say it. The Bible, the great champion of all true liberties, knows better than to allow people to say and teach whatever they like without the restraints of truth, morality, and decency. Much of the vileness and violence in modern society stems from the abuse of freedom of speech and from the unrestrained freedom of the press. Paul might have been un-American when he said that the mouths of those who teach flagrant error must be stopped, but he was not unchristian. The mouths of Satan's propagandists can be stopped, at least in any gathering of God's people, in two ways. Number one, the false teachers can be refuted and rebuked privately and warned publicly that no further heretical teaching will be tolerated. Number two, if this method fails, they can be excommunicated. Expelling them from the church puts them back where they belong, in Satan's camp, where they can be exposed to divine discipline. One way or another, their voices must be silenced. That is the rule. And that sounds pretty harsh until you look at why. What's at stake here if we don't shut them up? Who subvert whole households? You're blank here. Read this as destroy families. This is where it gets real. This is where they're going after families. Um, and, you know, if you're, let's say, that you're getting ready to teach a Sunday school lesson and you need an illustration, let's, let's just say. And uh, let's, let's say you Google our sheep dumb. Um, you might run across sheep101.info, and I'm going to read you a quote from there, Okay. Let me say first, I don't entirely agree with the, the quote as far as the defensiveness, defenselessness of the sheep. Um, I, look at that, though. They got these little hooves. They can stomp you out. Okay? They can headbutt. You ever been to a petting zoo and have one of your kids get plowed over? Sheep are not defenseless, but in general, you know, they're not armed either. Um, but a ram with, okay, well, now a ram with horns can actually inflict fatal blows. Okay? Um, but just, just listen to the quote from here. Due to their strong flocking instinct and failure to act independently of one another, sheep have been universally branded stupid. But sheep are not stupid. Now, get this is the part here that just, I was like, wow, this is this writer's kind of unintended metaphor into our, into our lesson today. Their only protection from predators is to band together and follow the sheep in front of them. If a predator is threatening the flock, this is not the time to act independently. Would you not agree? So, 
these predators, these wolves in sheep's clothing, have gotten inside the sheepfold. They're going after the immature Christians, the easiest prey, the immature sheep. How are they doing it? They're teaching things which they ought not. And Guzik here says there's three things that should not be taught among Christians. Your first blank is false doctrine. And uh, Doug Skinner submitted a quote from John MacArthur which states, The pastor's purpose is not to make scripture relevant to his people, but to enable them to understand doctrine. So, as sheep following our shepherd, we need to be in the word and prayer daily so that we know the voice of our true shepherd. We'll recognize false doctrine, be able to refute it, and also be able to speak, maybe, uh, but refute it by knowing God and studying his word. In John 10, he talks about, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and am known by my own. And toward uh, 27 here, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I will give them eternal life, and they will never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Remember the penny? the hand, and the other hand's around the hand, and then the, the handkerchief around that. Nobody's going to snatch them out of his hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. Your second blank there of the things that should not be taught about Christians is insubordinate things. And this is not submitting to God's order of authority, things that cause speculation, arguments, things that cause fighting and distractions, uh, rendering any word spoken there ineffective. Your third blank is idle talk and unprofitable things. This is the fluff. This is the Joel Osteen's. This is the feel-good theology. This is milk toast when we should be getting doctrinal meat of the word. There's an end coming for the devil, and he knows it. And he's fine if we waste our time and our opportunities to share the gospel and to share and teach good theology. It plays right into his strategy. He could have us waste our time all he wants. That's fine with him. Now, Kristen Barber, who is reading through John Calvin's commentary, go, Kristen. Um, she, she, uh, she spoke up on regards to uh, Calvin's comments, and, and Calvin's stuff's okay. But I was drawn in by her words. Uh, which were these. These comments stuck out to me because I tend to see this a lot at my private Christian school. People think too much of themselves and end up saying something that's based on their own understanding rather than Scripture. In many ways, a poorly worded phrase from the mouth of an arrogant Christian is more damaging to the reputation of the church than purposeful slander from a non-believer. Boom. Just lays it down there. Dave, you're doing good things in that household. What are the... What's that? I married up. There you go. <laughs> we would all agree. Uh, <laughs> for the sake of dishonest gain. This is what these people are in it for. Satan's driving them, and they think they're doing it for dishonest gain. Money, uh, Paul was talking about here. But think about it. Power, fame, ratings, any number of things that... Uh, Anything but producing mature sheep is the idea. They're not the shepherds. They're false shepherds. They're false teachers. They're, they're leading people. They would try to bring people down the wrong path. And they're not here to help you, but rather to help, and here's the blank, themselves at your expense. I'm, I'm sorry. I, are we still talking about Crete here? It just feels like uh, what's going on today. Um, 
So going back to Crete, uh, let's go to verse 12. One of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. And so the scholars largely agree that this guy was Epimenides of Knossos, Crete. So he lived somewhere in the neighborhood of four to 500 B.C. Um, so this was, by the time Paul arrives on the scene, this is a fairly well-established theme on Crete, that these guys are kind of, you know, hardened and liars and cheats and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. So... It's prevalent then that the Cretan character, uh, <laughs> the Greeks were so familiar with this, that they formed a verb, Cretesian, uh, which means to lie and cheat, like a Cretan. And another popular phrase that I would butcher if I tried to pronounce it, so I would just tell you what it basically meant, was to lie like a Cretan. Okay? So this was what these people were known for. And this was what Titus and his band of brothers were being sent into. This is a hardened bunch. These are not just... You know, people who, oh, I just need to hear the word, and I'll go with you. No, 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 no. These are hardened people, okay? So, you know, Paul can say this testimony is true in verse 13, but it really, you know, makes you more pay more attention when one of your own is telling you this, okay? So, therefore, rebuke them sharply. So, and Guzik says here, if these congregations were left themselves, chaos and error would dominate the churches. So, this is a surgical rebuke, sharp. There is something wrong. There is a life-threatening malignancy inside the church. It needs to be removed. You don't just slap a Band-Aid on this, put some salve on it, say, feel better. This is something that somebody needs to go and do surgery on this church. Something's wrong. It's messed up. You cut. It's messy. It's painful. It's bloody. And it's not the job for an amateur. You want a qualified surgeon. You want an elder, a pastor, somebody who's had training, somebody who knows what they're doing when they get in there. Somebody's going to have that Swiss Army elder behind them to say, okay, we've, we found this here. We need to be able to utilize this tool, move into this and this, and skill and ability and bring it into the situation. This is the elder's task right here. Rebuke them sharply. Why? When you do surgery... You don't do it just because, well, it's a billable procedure and, you know, I'll get some money for it. No, there's, not always. Um, you do it because there's something wrong. You want to fix this. That they may be sound in the faith. They want, you want to restore somebody and help them regain, here's your blank, your, their spiritual health. Verse 14, not giving heed to Jewish fables, and commandments of men. So these are the legalisms of the Judaizers who turn, now the, the verbiage here points to somebody who's turning themselves, there's your blank, and others, there's your other blank, away from the truth. So they've seen the truth, they haven't accepted the truth, they've turned away from the truth. And generally when somebody turns away from the truth, they're not just happy to walk away by themselves, they want to bring other people with them. They want to build you know, strength on their side. And say, so you guys are wrong, and, and drag others down with them. They're not content to doing this alone either. So we shouldn't be content doing our thing alone. We need to band together. To the pure, all things are pure. The word here is katharos, and the, the uh, meaning is the pure as a result of cleansing, which Jesus' blood did for us on the cross. So not born free from impurity, but now by the blood of Christ free from impurity, spotless, without blemish. This is the way that Christ wants to present his bride to God. 
free from corrupt desire and the consequent guilt. Now, Amy V, she sent in this thing, and, and you, the quote is there, grace does not make obedience obsolete. And Paul, in his introduction to, to Titus, he calls himself, and this is the only time he does it, he calls himself God's slave. He's big on freedom. But his freedom, the true freedom that he talks about, is the freedom to serve God without guilt. The freedom to do God's will. So when you read grace here, it does not make obedience obsolete. Think of it more as obedience is a sign of love and respect. We are free to love and respect and obey God, no matter what the world says about us. We're free to act out his will in his way. The contrast here then is to the free people, but to those who are defiled, which polluted, and unbelieving, turned away, nothing's pure. Even their mind and conscience are defiled. They profess to know God, but in works they deny Him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Now, did you notice, if you read the first passage and then you read this week's passage, these are descriptions of two groups that are diametrically opposed to each other. This last phrase especially, disobedient, abominable, disobedient, and disqualified, Direct opposition to the elders that Paul calls Titus to go and get them. Assemble your band of brothers. Assemble the pure, the obedient, the qualified elders. The warrior sheep that are matched up to do battle against these false teachers. And it seems like an impossible task, but, you got to love this word, but, the good shepherd fights for the sheep. So what do I do with that? What's the point? Why do we spend this time together? I want you to know that church elders have a hard, here's blank, God-appointed job. So what do we do with that? Obey your elders. Ooh. What? What? Obey the elders. What? They're speaking for God on His authority. In relation to church discipline and direction and elders' authority, Hebrews 13, 17 speaks of the elders by saying, Obey those who rule over you, and be submissive. For they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. There is gravity to this. This is not something just anybody gets, you know, this elder job. You want to be an elder? No. No. Paul has set down, if you you even think about it being an elder, you must be this. The job calls for this. There, there has to be integrity. This isn't for everybody. Not everybody's called to be an elder. Point number two. Church elders have a, here's a blank, hard, God-appointed job. What do we do with that? Pray for your, first blank, elders. Second blank, pastor teachers. Oh, there we go. Sorry, filled in. And third blank, shepherds. It's the same description. And the third, we the sheep are the body of Christ, is your blank. And so what's the application there? How do we personalize that? Band together. So we've gone to 1042. Um, I've got one more thing for you. If there's any more housekeeping, uh, we're going to pray at your tables after this. Maybe if we have to, we'll have some time. It's a, it's a short video. But uh, uh, I was really hit this week, uh, these past two weeks. The, the text has just been beating on me. 
and, and seeing where I'm missing the mark and where God calls us to be, and, and men in particular on Father's Day. Uh, by virtue of being Christian men, I'm talking to myself here too, God's calling us to serve alongside elders or perhaps as elders. So while this particular video that we're going to see here honors Christian firefighters in New York, remember it's a call to Christian men to step up in the strength that God gives and assume the role that causes us to celebrate Father's Day.